This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Crossing to Safety by Pulitzer Prize winner Wallace Stegner was published in 1987. It was Stegner's final novel and a beautiful, life-affirming way to end a storied career. The novel spans 50 years. In the 1930s, Larry and Sally Morgan, a young couple, arrive in Madison, Wisconsin, so Larry, a promising young writer, can teach at the university. Soon they meet another young couple, Sid and Charity Lang. Sid also teaches in the English department. The Morgans are poor, with no family to speak of. They've come from the West. The Langs are rich, Ivy League educated from New England. The couples become fast friends, and that friendship endures through the decades. Let's start with a little bit of an excerpt from the novel. This is shortly after the couples have met, and the Langs hold a dinner party. When the party breaks up, the Morgans aren't ready to go, and the Langs don't want them to leave, so the four of them go for a midnight walk. And the narrator of the book is Larry Morgan. I remember how quiet it was, how empty the streets at that hour, how our feet were loud on pavement and then hushed in grass, then crackly in leaves. There was a glint of settling frost in the air. Our voices and breaths went up and got mixed with the shadows of trees and the bloom of arc lights and the glitter of stars. It was like nothing I had known, either in Albuquerque or Berkeley. It looked different, sounded different, smelled different, felt different. And these two people were the newest and best part of it. It is there in my head now, as bright and dark as Hausman's vision of human hate, but with the opposite meaning. We talked and talked. We told each other what we liked and what we had done and what we wanted to do. If we quit talking for a minute, in flowed that frosty, comforting Midwestern night. Don't you think of this place as an opportunity, Charity asked us. Don't you feel the way we do, how young and promising it is, and how much there is to be done and given and taught and learned? Sid and I feel so lucky. Back in Cambridge, some people felt sorry for us going away to Wisconsin, as if it were Siberia. They just don't know. They don't know how warm and friendly and open and eager it is, and bright, too. And I'll skip some of Charity's monologue here and pick up with this. She went on like that for blocks while Sid murmured and agreed and prompted and listened. She said a lot of things we might have thought or hoped but would have been embarrassed to express. Never in our lives had we felt so close to two people. Charity and Sally had their competitive pregnancies. We were all at the beginning of something. The future unrolled ahead of us like a white road under the moon. When we got back to their big, lighted house, it seemed like our house, too. In one evening, we had been made at home in it. And that's just a little bit from Chapter 3 of Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner. In a few minutes, I'll bring our expert readers, Karen Bryan, formerly of WOI Radio and Iowa Public Radio. She's retired now. And Michael Nock of Clark University in Dubuque into the conversation. But first, Dean Bacopoulos is here. He is a critically acclaimed novelist and screenwriter, the writer-in-residence and associate professor at Grinnell College. Dean, welcome back to the show. Hey, Charity. Good morning. Well, thank you so much for being here. And, and let's start with just a little bit of background on Wallace Stegner. He was known as the Dean of Western Writers. And I mentioned earlier that he was born in Iowa. He went to the University of Iowa for both his master's and his doctorate. So we do have a, a nice, strong claim on him, even though I know that the, the West claims Stegner. 
For people who aren't familiar with him, uh, we know that he won the Pulitzer Prize in 1972, the National Book Award in 1977. What makes Stegner such a force? Well, I think Stegner sort of um, embodies this this sort of feel of the straggler. The you know, in the book, he refers to Larry, the character that's that's pretty much based on him straggling into Madison, a Western orphan, but. You know, he was a he was a very sensitive kid with a with a pretty mean father and erratic father, and I think there's this mystique around, I guess, the self-made artist, the artist who comes from um, simple origins and embraces that as part of their identity and tells that story, um, and that was so connected to him with the expansiveness of the Western landscape, almost you know that almost a. a it's such a deep sentimentalization of what the West meant. Um, sometimes it can feel um, a little rose-colored glasses, but I think the landscape was his refuge. That was became that, and his long marriage um, became his his refuge and his legacy in a lot of ways. And it just comes into his writings with this absolute um, awe and reverence he has for two things, which is landscape and, and real love. And I think that's where Stegner really resonates through all his books. It's just this gratitude for being on an earth that's this magnificent, despite all the darkness that, that you know befalls it, and that real love is possible. And those are two really beautiful, positive parts of his work that I think just um, don't go away and, and really speak I mean, spoke to me definitely reading it this time in this current moment in history. Well, and and he has such a gift for describing the landscape. I mean, his just gifts of description are, are really extraordinary. And also, he makes you feel so much. I mean, his, his characters are are very realistic and the emotions are deep. I mean, it's a it's an emotional journey to read a Stegner book. It is, and he didn't shy away from that. And I think there was, um, there's always been a kind of duality among American writers, and this maybe simplifies it too much. But there's like the cynical, I'm not moved by anything sort of school, and then there's the the more sentimental, the the big-hearted um, writers who tend to risk maybe maybe sentimentality, risk romanticizing things, but they really do feel. Um, the beauty of the landscape so deeply. And I think you, you see that ache in Stegner. Um, and, and then it's nonfiction too, a really a- an ache for what we've done to that beauty, what we've, we've done to the environment and the earth. Um, so there's a lot of grief in some of his nonfiction about that. When did you first encounter this book, Crossing to Safety? Uh, I read it, I was living in Madison, which is where much of the novel is set. And um, I was a young writer working at a bookshop called Canterbury Booksellers, which was a dream job, partly because I got free books. And one of the customers who was, I think, probably in his 60s, which seemed ancient to me at the time, I was in my early 20s, but he told me I absolutely had to read it um, because I was a writer living in Madison. And I read it and I really enjoyed it. I, I, I mean, I love the power of description in it. I love Stegner's a master at withholding information so that even a um, sort of aimless plot or a a quiet plot begins to feel suspenseful. But when I was reading it, I definitely felt that I I appreciated it, but it felt like an older person's book, and I didn't quite feel it as acutely as I felt it reading it this month. 
Yeah. So so from your 20s to your 40s, and you've had all of these things happen to you in between that are similar to things that have happened to Larry Morgan in the book. I I can imagine that this hit you pretty hard. You know, there's a scene in the book, probably one of my very favorite scenes in all of American literature, to be honest, that the night that Larry finds out he sold his novel to Houghton Mifflin and, um, you know, or to Harcourt, I think. Um, the that happened to me almost exactly <laughs> like it happens in the book. I was living in Madison. I was um, newly married. We were in our 20s. We were broke. Um, I was, you know, working retail and um, in grad school part time, and just uh, selling that, selling my first novel for what seemed like an amount of money that would never run out. Of course, quickly it did, but <laughs> um, for more money than I'd ever ever seen in my life. Uh, we had a huge party in our house, and 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 my um, my wife at the time, the woman I was married to, then called everybody up and had this big party. And we had maybe a hundred people crammed into this little craftsman bungalow on Madison's west side. And it was one of the greatest nights of my life, just all seeing all my friends there celebrating. And that's exactly what happens in this novel. And I, I, I mean, it made me nostalgic for that moment as a writer when you finally realize you know, you could actually do this. This is actually happening. All this time alone in your room might have actually turned into a career. But what's also amazing reading it now was how much I miss friends, how much I miss spontaneous gatherings, crowded rooms of people eating and drinking too much and talking too loud. Um, it was really, really uh, unexpected. I read that. It was both moved with nostalgia for that moment in my life, but also for, you know, the pandemic me just, wow, wouldn't it be amazing to call up everybody and say, come over? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I want to talk just briefly about the the four main characters in the book. And of course, we will talk a lot more about them as the hour goes on. Um, but as a, a screenwriter, when you and I first talked about the book, you told me that you are thinking about these four different characters and sort of the, the roles that they would play in uh, television writing. But so try to sum up the, the four people that we're focusing on for me. Yeah, I mean, television shows, and you can you can see this if you look at your favorite shows, often have a foursome at the core. And they all kind of take apart, like a, a, almost a worldview or philosophy, and that's kind of their anchoring characteristic. And reading it this time, I was really moved by like how psychologically astute Stegner is, but also compassionate. So you could call people on their stuff, on their baggage, um, but also portray them so compassionately. So for me, Larry, you know, the, the narrator is – is the the guy who's proud of being an outsider, but also very hypervigilant, whose parents who were somewhat eccentric died suddenly. He believes that, you know, don't get your hopes up because something bad is coming. Fate has something in store for you. And he's really hypervigilant. Um, Sid is the overthinker. Sid is somebody who um, almost because he's so thoughtful is stuck in his thinking and almost prefers to blame others for that stuckness that he he kind of signs away his own agency whether it's control of the great wealth he inherits you know which which should free you up it almost limits him um so he's the sits the overthinker charity is i think the most fascinating heart of this novel i mean she's i think she steals the novel because there's such a human impulse in her to lock down the future to strive towards certainty to do whatever it takes to make the plan that will fend off all the 
the bad troubles. And as we're learning right now, like that's impossible. But she really, really believes if she thinks and works and plans hard enough, she'll keep you know the future safe. And then Sally is, I think, the saint of the novel um, based on, on Stegner's own wife. She's so deeply in the present moment, and she just accepts the present moment and I think is really, truly the, the hero of the novel because she's able to do that. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment with me, author Dean Bacopoulos. We're talking about Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner. This is Talk of Iowa. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe, and today we're talking about Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner. It was first published in 1987, and it tells the story of 50 or so years of friendship between Larry and Sally Morgan and Sid and Charity Lang. These are two couples who met in the 1930s during the Depression in Madison, Wisconsin. And the book is considered to be semi-autobiographical with Larry Morgan standing in for Stegner. It was the last novel that he wrote. Dean Bacopoulos is still here, critically acclaimed novelist and screenwriter, the writer-in-residence and associate professor at Grinnell College. And I want to bring our other expert readers into the conversation as well. Michael Nock is an associate professor of history at Clark University in Dubuque. Hello, Michael. Hello. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you so much for being here. And now a familiar voice to many Iowans. Karen Bryan is retired now, but spent many years on the air at WOI Radio in Ames, which became part of Iowa Public Radio. She was a classical music announcer and the host of Stage and Screen. She's also the woman who gave me my first Wallace Stegner novel. Karen, welcome. Oh, it's such a joy to be here again. Well, it's so wonderful to have you here. And I I want to ask everybody. So, Karen, I'll let you go first. Tell me just a little bit about your relationship with this book and and your impressions coming back to it this time. Well, this is a novel that grabs you on the first page. You have to read on. You're at the end of the story on the first page as as. Larry and Sally have arrived um, in Vermont at uh, the kind of family compound that uh, the Langs and the Ellises preside over. And uh, right there in, I think, the third paragraph, Larry is saying, though this, this little guest cottage that they're in is, is shabby and has been neglected, he says, I have spent too many good days and nights in this cottage to be depressed by it. Now, right away, you're wondering, all right, what were those days and nights and what brought you here? So you have to read on. And that's the novelist's aim and gift is to get you to read on. Yeah, he certainly certainly gets you hooked right away. And you first read this not long after it came out, right? Just after it came out in paperback. Because I had read a lot of, of Stegner up to that point and uh, anything new from him I wanted to read Uh, he wrote a book called Beyond the Hundredth Meridian which is all about how the landscape changes as you go east to west and I've experienced it personally as has anybody who's driven Interstate 80 in either direction 
at the 100th meridian, things change. The humidity decreases. The landscape changes. It's, it's amazing how stark the contrast is between east and west. And he's also written extensively about how the dryness of the climate out here, I'm talking from Salt Lake City, uh, influences every aspect of life out here. And uh, on, right here on, on page 13, Wallace Stegner describes exactly how I felt coming from the west uh, into Ames, Iowa. They're, they've been driving for who knows how long. And he says, rain was falling when we reached the Mississippi. Going through Dubuque, we bumped along brick streets between shabby, high-porched, steep-gabled houses with brick church spires poking up from among them and down a long cathedral aisle of elms toward the river. To my western eyes, it was another country, as alien as North Europe. <laughs> Boy, that captured exactly what I felt when I came from the West. <laughs> oh, well, we're so glad that you did come from the West, Karen. And since uh, Michael's in Dubuque, that feels like a perfect segue. Michael, uh, when did you first read this novel? I first read this novel about 14 or 15 years ago. Um, I had encountered Stegner in grad school. My, I studied the American West in grad school, and my advisor loved Stegner. Uh, and so I read um, Beyond the 100th Meridian and Angle of Repose, and then kind of took a holiday from Stegner for about 20-some years. And um, my husband actually recommended I try Crossing to Safety. He had read it and said, well, if you like Stegner, you're going to love this. This is one of, one of his favorite books. And so um, I picked it up, and exactly, I mean, it's, that's the exact experience. I mean, it, it grabs you from page one and uh, makes you want to know what's going on, who are these people, um, what connects them together. Um, and I also think, uh, just to echo something that was said earlier, it is a book, I think it's a, it, it is a book for adults uh, in the sense that it becomes more poignant the older you get. Um, when you're 25, when you're 20, 25 years old, I mean, the prospect of a friendship that's going to last 30, 40 years, it doesn't really seem real. Um, but, you know, the older you get, the more, the more real that becomes. And that was what I experienced this time reading it when I was rereading it for this program. Well, it's just the sense that this is, a, this, is, this is absolutely how life is. No pressure, though, having your husband say that he this is one of his favorite books and you should read it. And it's a book that deeply explores marriage. So. Exactly. Good point. Good, good point. Good thing you liked it. I did. I did like it. And I enjoyed reading it the second time. And now he's going to read it the second time. Oh, that's great. That's great. Well, I, I want to start exploring the themes of the book. And Michael, I'll let you start us off on the subject of friendship, because I mean, that's really the the overarching theme of this book, this exploration of this lifelong friendship between these two couples. And the excerpt that I read earlier, I picked it because it shows those sort of heady moments when these couples are falling in love with each other. But uh, Michael, what, what strikes you about friendship in this novel, which is not something that we see explored in this kind of deep way very often? I agree. Um, friendship in this book, I mean, it I should say Stegner captures the excitement 
of that spark when you first meet someone that you just want to know better. Um, Maybe someone you've never met before. And suddenly you realize there's a connection there and you want to know everything about them immediately. You want to spend every minute of the day with them. I mean, it is like a love affair in that respect. I mean, um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. And it's the sort of thing that you only experience. You don't experience it with every friend you have, but we can all talk about or think about friends with whom we've had that kind of a connection. And um, that notion of, I mean, I, that notion, that that point in the book where um, Sid, not Sid, um, where uh, Larry and Sally first meet Charity, it's it's just fantastic. Um, she's again, she is someone who comes from wealth, from privilege. And here she is sitting in this basement apartment, kind of a shabby little place in Madison. And she, she gives off nothing that other than she just loves these people. And I also love the fact that that friendship changes over time. Um, by the end of the novel, I mean, these people know each other the way you know family. Um, actually, they probably know one another better than the way they know family. Um, there's a beautiful scene I was rereading ahead where she where one of the daughters i think it's hallie you know begs them to write the story write him begs larry to write the story of 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 their parents and he says well you know i can't do that um but at the same time it's just like he knows he knows her parents better than she does right right well and dean i would love to hear your thoughts on this too because one of the things that i love about the book is the exploration of the friendship between Larry and Sid. Now, Charity is the outsized character in this book. She is the the heart and soul of this novel in so many ways. But it, it does seem particularly rare to see a male friendship explored in this way. And and Larry is so open to talking about how important both of these people are to him. I mean, I think, yeah, that's the great observation. I think that's one of the, the deep charms of this book is that it is told by a male who has given himself permission to be sensitive. You know, we know Stegner was described as a sensitive boy with a very uh, insensitive um, father. And I think one of the ways that men kind of overcome a cultural um, bias against any sensitivity or emotion is through friendship. I mean, that's really where they start to break down some of their walls. And I think Larry has some deep mistrust of wealth and of other people that he doesn't know and of fate and the, the lengths just, uh, you know, break down those walls. And I feel like that is such a beautiful part of the book is that Larry has completely opened himself to their energy and their generosity, which is really hard for him. And I think that's a great challenge of friendship. Uh, for certain people, especially if you grow up poor or working class um, or hard scrabble in any way, is just accepting generosity, which is a cornerstone of friendship. Yeah, well, and, and Charity excels in generosity. <laughs> Karen, yeah. you know, I, Karen, I first read uh, Angle of Repose by Wallace Stegner back when I was 25 years old because you gave it to me then, and I was going to read this book and I didn't. So I, I'm kind of glad that I waited until I was 45 years old to read the book because I think that at 25 I wouldn't have been very forgiving of particularly of a lot of Charity's foibles. And and now at 45 I I can love her in spite of her foibles. But let's talk a little bit about Charity Lang because she is a true loving and kind generous friend, but she is a little overwhelming. 
She is. She is a strong personality who seems to have a need to steer everyone else in the direction she wants to go. And uh, there are so many incidents in the book where she just presses on with the way she thinks things ought to be to the to the chagrin and detriment of, of the others around her sometimes. There's that camping trip where she's read a book about about the place that they're going and how you get there. And she's determined to follow the uh, the book no matter what happens. So they take a route that's way more difficult than it needs to be because the guy has said in the book, this is the way you go. And then when they when they camp overnight, um, they're cooking. And the book says that you should only cook the chicken for a certain amount of time. And when she when they've done that, the chicken is raw. It's not cooked. And she insists that it's fine because it says so in the book. <laughs> and also, she does she comes... eventually admit that she's wrong about that, just to give her a little bit of credit there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she comes, her father is a distinguished academic in a subject that absolutely no one knows about. Um, uh, although he's distinguished in his field, but nobody else in the family cares what it is. The fact is that he has made a success of it. And uh, this is a family that's had what they call a camp. Uh, In the eastern part of the country, what they call a camp is really a family compound with, you know, plumbing and and, uh, a a real roof over your head and uh, outbuildings, too, one of which is where the novel begins. And she has grown up with a successful academic as a father, and she so wants Sid, her husband, to achieve the same thing. And in a way, he does, but he never becomes a writer. He doesn't really publish in the way that uh, her father did or that Larry certainly does. And uh, that's something that nags at Sid and that she kind of pushes and nags him about because he's a natural-born teacher. All All his female students fall in love with him. But what he can't do is put literature on a page, no matter how hard he tries. So if it's publish or perish in the academic world, he would naturally perish, except that he's this wonderful teacher and can impart the love of literature and poetry to his students in a way that he has this gift that I think in academia is often devalued. The fact that he's a wonderful teacher doesn't count nearly as much as it would if he had turned out literature that had gone around the world. (laughs) Well, it is it is really striking. And I I know that everybody in this conversation feels that it's striking that the descriptions of academia and the the things that both Larry and Sid are dealing with in their academic pursuits, they feel like they could have been written five minutes ago, as opposed to describing what they were going through in the 30s and 40s and beyond. And I don't want to dig too deeply into that right now, because there's this perfect segue here to talk about a theme that you want to explore, Dean, which is uncertainty. Karen was just talking about how charity has to try to control and orchestrate everything, and that's really her defining characteristic. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I think that charity is a, a great example for us in 2020 um, in terms of not so much a cautionary tale because I don't think she ruins a lot, but she she really believes that with resources and planning, you can craft the perfect life. And she even considers, you know, making Madison into a place of pilgrimage. And it would be such a, you know, that they're going to transform the culture there. Um, but what happens, you know, right before the depression happens and rattles everybody and then the war breaks out. And then later on in the novel, there's Sally's uh, polio. And so world events, including a, a, a runaway virus, uh, recessions, depressions, wars, uh, really prevent anyone from living in the future. And that, you know, the book to me is just a celebration of, you know, the moments the book soars is when all the characters are deeply present and the joy of being together, of, of um, sharing life together. And where the book starts to get dark is when one of the characters gets overly concerned about the future. And I think for me reading it now, you know, when making plans feels almost impossible and world events feel so fraught and, and unpredictable that the book really shows that when you can give up on the, the notion of certainty, that it's not something you can control, there's great joy in life and there's great beauty in nature. Um, but you, those get clouded up once, the, once you start to fret about what's coming next. Well, and that that need of charities to control things, uh, it's interesting to me to think about women in that time, in the 1930s when we meet her. Of course, she has a tremendous, extraordinary education but she can't do anything with it. So not only is, is she someone who maybe has a natural affinity to try to control others, but she also has nowhere else to put her crazy, wild, brilliant energy either. And we, we have to take a break. I want to talk more about that in just a moment when we come back. But with me today, Dean Bacopoulos. He is a critically acclaimed author and screenwriter. He is a writer in residence and associate professor at Grinnell College. Also with me today, Michael Nock, who is an associate professor of history in Dubuque at Clark University. And Karen Bryan, a retired broadcaster from WOI Radio in Ames, which of course became part Part of Iowa Public Radio. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today we're talking about Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner. It was Wallace Stegner, Pulitzer Prize winner's last novel published in 1987. It tells the story of Larry and Sally Morgan and Sid and Charity Lang, two couples who become fast friends in the 1930s and their friendship endures for decades. They met in Madison, Wisconsin, but a lot of the novel takes place not just in Madison, but also in Vermont and, and a few other places in the world as well. And 
with me talking about the book, Dean Bacopoulos, critically acclaimed novelist and screenwriter, writer in residence and associate professor at Grinnell College. Michael Nock is here, associate professor of history at Clark University in Dubuque. And Karen Bryan, a retired broadcaster from WOI Radio in Ames, which became part of Iowa Public Radio. And just before the break, I had I had sort of tossed out that, you know, let's talk about the women in this book. Both Sally and Charity are very educated. Um, they're very bright women, but they are contained by the sexism of the times. And, and Dean, I heard you inhale. You definitely had something you wanted to add to what I was saying there. What, what did you want to add? Well, I think that the, the thing about Charity and, and Sally, though Sally seems more quiet about it, that is that they really aren't permitted to dream for themselves. And I think that, you know, um, Larry's narrative sort of, you know, focuses on them, um, but but maybe neglects to say like how little of their own dreams they were able to even put, you know, voice, let alone put into practice. And I think Charity is really driven by that. She needs to dream through her husband because of the world, the way the world was. She couldn't do what he could do. Um, so, you know, um, reading it now, just seeing how much of ambition had to come through a spouse, um, both securing, quote unquote, securing the right spouse and then hoping that they worked in the manner you wanted them to work towards what you wanted. It's really a sad part of the book for me because, um, you know, it's really sort of poignant to see Vice President-elect Kamala Harris kind of achieve her dreams and realizing this is very, very new. This is the first time that glass ceiling has been shattered. So in charity started dreaming she really didn't wasn't allowed to dream for herself and karen do you have anything you want to add to that well it's wonderful how uh by the time you know charity well you've also met her mother and you know sometimes when you when you meet the parent of a good friend of yours you can say aha that's where she gets it (laughs) her mother is the same kind of strong character who channels her own hopes and dreams into her husband's career and also into kind of directing the lives of her children and her grandchildren come to that. So you can you can see where it comes from. Absolutely. And that's one of the one of the wonderful things that you never know Larry's parents or Sally's are much about Sid's either. And there is that you read from that passage where the two couples meet and one of the things that strikes Larry and Sally immediately is, you know, we're just we're barely scraping by on what they pay a teaching assistant in the middle of the, of the depression. You know, you're living paycheck to paycheck, and they come to this house that uh, a Sid and Charity are renting, and there's this abundance of everything. It's there's food, there's wine, there's. Um, all the things that tell you this couple has had a standard of living that's well above what their fellow teaching assistants can aspire to. And uh, you find out later that Sid has inherited wealth, considerable inherited wealth. And that has shaped his life and in a way limited it too. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, and there there are funny details in that scene. I mean, Stegner is the master of the tiny detail, like the the songbooks that they sing from at that party and how much each one of those songbooks must have cost and, and what a ridiculous extravagance it is right at that point in, in time. Uh, Michael, I know that you have been casting the movie of Crossing to Safety in your mind, and, and you have the perfect person to play Charity. Uh, yes, I. The minute I started reading it the second time, I I cannot get, um, especially when we're talking young charity, I cannot get Catherine Hepburn out of my head. Um, just that New England patrician, that voice, that confidence, that strength, and I just cannot see anyone else playing that role uh, other than Catherine Hepburn. I see her as just perfect in that part. Um, as soon as you I, told me that, now I hear her voice when I, I think exactly. of Charity. I mean, just such a, a strong, strong personality and clearly, you know, in control and brilliant and, and over the top in so many ways. Mm-hmm. And watch, watch the Philadelphia story again. You'll see what, what he means. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> that's, that's the perfect thing to do. I, we have Mark on the line in Urbandale who wants to join the conversation. Hey, Mark. Thank you for your show and your guest. Uh, the, it's my first uh, introduction to Stegner, and I was just enthralled with his writing so much that I went out and checked out the uh, Angle of Repose and getting ready to start that. But uh, one thing that struck me, and maybe your guest can comment uh, on this, but I was, I was a little disappointed in the ending. Uh, you know, he kind of built up, and you were hoping there wasn't going to be tragedy or whatever there. But after I reflect on it a little bit more, it's kind of like, okay, uh, I get it. Maybe Sid is you know, charity is still gonna, you know, guide Sid and lead him in a way. In the last exchange of, you know, Sid and and yes, and it ends there. And I was kind of like, oh wow, <laughs> you know, I would have liked a little more, a little bit more than that. But uh, but uh, your guests and how they reflect on that. But thank you. Yeah, Mark. Thanks so so much for your call. And I, you know, for people who may still be reading, I guess I don't want to give too much away about how the book ends, although this is such a, as you said, Dean, you know, not a whole lot happens in the book, but he manages to create suspense and draw you along. You want to know about these sort of small domestic things that happen, and the end of the book is heartbreaking, as we know that that Charity is terminally ill, and she's trying to orchestrate the end of life as she has orchestrated everything else, and there's just so much pain there dean well i think that you know one reason i admire stegner is he as sentimental as he was about certain things he understood that that narrative you know life resists narrative and there's a a a line towards the end of the book where he writes the miserable failure of the law of nature to conform to the dream of man and i think that he you know this is his, his final book and i think i'm not sure he knew that but He's really resisting a closure other than that word yes. You know, that is to me what opens up the book. Like this to me is say yes, say yes to generosity, say yes to chaos, say yes to your creativity. I mean, to me, it's a really hopeful, poignant final word from Sid. Um, But I don't think Stegner could have made it a, a more sort of close-ended, you know, summing up. I think that's just Stegner's vision was that, you know, life didn't conform to what we dream, you know, to the dream, you know.
Yeah, there's a I mentioned the little details that Stegner drops in. And Karen, I know one of the the tiny details that just really spoke to you um, comes right toward the end of the novel. And we know that that Sid would love to be a poet and he writes poetry and it's not very good. And he doesn't become a famous poet and charity doesn't want him to waste his time on his poetry. And when Larry goes into Sid's study, he notices that there's a book on the shelf with the spine turned away. So he pulls out that book and it's a rhyming dictionary. And we can just feel Sid's shame and embarrassment about having a rhyming dictionary on his shelf. I mean, it's just one of those tiny details that punches you in the gut. Right, Karen? Well, also that and also the fact that this shed slash workshop is so organized right down to the last detail, nuts and bolts and tools and everything, all in their places, all ready to go. And what you get from that description is that when he goes out in what is supposed to be his writing chamber, um, he sittled around organizing the place rather than sitting down and writing. He's concentrated so much of his energy on keeping the place in good order You know, it's like writers who say, well, I spent the morning sharpening pencils. Um, He's doing this instead of getting down to it. Because so far he hasn't produced all that much that will echo down the generations. You know, Sid is portrayed as, as a very beautiful physical specimen. You can you are are it's intimated that one of the reasons Charity married him is that he's sexy. That's why his <laughs> girls, his women, female students, fall in love with him. And uh, he's also very mechanically adept. He can he can do things with his hands that you wouldn't expect of a guy who's grown up with great wealth right. behind him. And there's this I love this scene where where Sid and Larry are out there trying to start an ancient car, a marmon. It's been sitting and sitting and getting leaves and dust in it for years and years. And uh, they've primed it, and it's all ready to start. Hail Mary full of grief, Sid said, stepping on the starter, a subterranean grinding, heavy and hoarse. He took his foot off the starter, adjusted the choke, stepped down again. The grinding resumed went on patiently for a good minute, grew slower, weakened, another tired half-turned, and then on the last juice from the battery, she coughed, raced, faded, caught again, and was running. Ha! He said. He was nursing her. At every stroke, a stream of gasoline as thick as my finger must be pulsing through the carburetor. She panted at us, in a whiskey and emphysema whisper of an Edith Wharton dowager, the marmot said. <laughs> I love that. Um, the, uh, one of the things about the book that is extremely unrealistic, and we don't need to explore this very long, is that uh, Charity and Sid have all these kids, and Larry and Sally have one. And we never see the kids. I mean, Dean, you are a man with two, well, three children, and you've written three novels, and it cannot have ever been as easy to make yourself focus with kids all over the place as it was for Larry. 
No, I mean, he locks himself away after work and writes, and I I would be, you know, mobbed by small children who really wanted to see me in bath time and bedtime. So I always wrote in the middle of the night. Um, <laughs> and so I, I felt some great envy. But the kids are, you know, this is, this is true in a lot of films and movies and books. The kids conveniently go away. And, uh, man, to have, you know, a week-long hike through Vermont without your children is, is most parents' you know, dream. Also a nightmare. I would be so worried. <laughs> There's no cell phone. But um, I did I did find that kind of um, maybe of the times and maybe just a convenient, the, right. the convenience the novelist needed to put in there. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. I want to take another phone call very quickly, and we don't have a lot of time left, Sue, but while we're talking about imperfections, there were a couple of other things that, that you really didn't like about the book. Sue, can you tell us? Oh, hi. Yes. Um, I'm a person who was born with a cleft lip and a cleft palate. And I started noticing as I read, and I, my first book was Crossing to Safety, and I started reading Stegner. He uses people with hair lips as defect, as symbols of defective personality, defective appearance. And it seems like a cheap thing for a writer to do. It seems mean-spirited to me, having that particular birth defect, but it also seems like a lazy thing for a writer to do. Interesting. And and there were, I mean, there are, are definitely other things in the book that are dated um, and, and feel uncomfortable reading it now at this point in in time. Uh, we only have a couple of minutes left. And, and Dean, I'll let you respond to that quickly. What your thoughts on, on what Sue brings up? Well, I think it's a very good point. You know, novels are imperfect beasts. They're just not ever going to not have flaws. And I think that, you know, Stegner's sort of gaze on difference um, on disability, on uh, things like that, it can be a little imperfect. Some of the metaphors he uses, you know, would not be used now. Um, but it's a great point that novelists, you know, have their own biases that they probably aren't even aware of. And almost the, the most biggest hearted novelist relies on sort of occasional cliche or stereotype. But it, it's important to note those as a young writer so that you you can try to find those in your own work. But I don't think any novelist can escape that. Yeah. Well, we only have about two minutes left, and and I do want to just briefly explore gratitude in in this book. And Dean, I know that this is something you brought up, but we haven't heard from from Michael in a while. And and that's I think one of the most beautiful parts of the book is we do get to hear Larry reflect on on just how grateful he is for his life and this friendship, in spite of all of those foibles and flaws and the things that have gone wrong. Michael. Definitely. Um, I think, um, and again, that's just to go, to go back. I mean, it, it, much of it comes back to Charity once again, who is so generous um, with all that she has. Uh, and towards the end of the book, Larry remarks on this, that, um, that he, it's, it's just something he has always struggled with, um, basically trying to accept things from, from others. Um, but yeah, I mean, no, he's, it's, he is truly grateful for this friendship. He is grateful for all of the the doors that the Langs have opened for them, for inviting them into this circle. Uh, I, I, I mean, like most of us, when you have a lifelong friend like that, you think to yourself, I can't imagine my life without them or how my life would be different without this person. Um, as difficult as Charity is, I mean, she is, I mean, she really is the engine in many respects for much of the good that happens to the, um, to um, 
uh, Larry and Sally. Yeah. Uh, and I also, I mean, I, I have to just say this. I just, I think he is grateful for his connection to Sid. Sid is my favorite character in the book. I just adore him. <laughs> um, so, uh, so I'm grateful for Sid. I think we, we all, we all are. And uh, we, we are out of time. Michael, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you very much for having me. Michael Nock of Clark University in Dubuque. Karen Bryan, what a pleasure it has been to have you on the show. Oh, my, the pleasure is all mine. Uh, way, way back in the beginning of the book, there's this wonderful line, we wanted to make our mark on the world, and instead it has left its mark on us. <sighs> and Dean Vakopoulos, thank you so much. And I know we've seriously got less than 30 seconds. You wanted to mention an, another great book that maybe people could read that, that's a more modern take on this kind of thing. Uh, I think a great novel about campus life and starting out in friendship is Real Life by Brandon Taylor. The Talk of Iowa Book Club is produced by me and Matt Alvarez. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. Thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing books for our readers. And be sure to join us on April 19th when we read Rita Dove's Pulitzer Prize-winning poetry collection, Thomas and Beulah. This is Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.